Good morning, everyone. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, it's so good to be able to swing my head from this corner now to this corner as well. So good to see so many of you and all of you here. Shall we begin? Esther chapter 7, verses 3 and 4. Verse 3. If I have found favour in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed and to be annihilated. The queen had to tread cautiously. It was the king who approved the death edict against the Jews. Esther had to be careful not to implicate the king. Who is he? The king demanded. Where is he, the man who has dared to do such a thing? Esther pointed him out. Verse 6. A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. That sealed Haman's fate. If there was any doubts in the king's mind, Haman himself removed it. He made the unforgivable mistake of violating harem rules by falling all over the queen. That was the final nail in Haman's coffin. He was executed that very same day. Open your Bibles to Esther chapter 8. I will just read the first two verses first. Esther chapter 8, verse 1. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. The enemy of the Jews is dead. What used to belong to Haman now belongs to Esther and Mordecai. His property goes to Esther. His position goes to Mordecai. The king has spared the lives of Esther and Mordecai, but, but he did nothing for the rest of the Jews. They still face the irrevocable death penalty on the 13th day of the 12th month. The queen has to make yet another unsummoned visit to the king. Let me read on, verse 3. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king and she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favour in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, 
let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamedatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sevan, on the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers, riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy to kill and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day, throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honour. And in every province and in every city where the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Nowhere in the book of Esther is the great reversal of destiny more clearly defined than in this chapter. In nearly identical language, what happened in chapter 3 are overturned by events in chapter 8. The edict in favour of the Jews parallels the edict against the Jews. The royal scribes are summoned 
as they were previously. The edict is written to all the provinces in its own script and language as it was previously. It is sealed with the king's signet ring as it was previously. Couriers are sent out as they were previously. Previously, the city was thrown into confusion. Now, the city rejoices and celebrates. Previously, any people of the provinces could kill, destroy, and annihilate the Jews. Now, the Jews could destroy, kill, and annihilate any people or province that might attack them. You know, most readers, when they come to this particular chapter and the following chapter, most readers encounter a serious moral issue. It poses a serious moral problem to modern readers as they read on concerning what happens and the edict of Mordecai himself. Many ask questions like this. How can God's people destroy, kill and annihilate others? How can God's people resort to the same despicable means as used by ungodly pagans? How can God's people justify retributive violence even to women and children? How can God's people decide who gets to live and who gets to die? Some even ask this question, does the book of Esther support holy war? Can it be used to justify violence against the enemies of God? So this morning, I want, I'd like to talk about holy war. Let's investigate first the concept of holy war. You see, the idea of holy war is already troubling, or the idea of war is already troubling to modern years. To tag the adjective holy to the noun war is even worse. It is morally offensive. Many considered the notion of holy war an outmoded construct in our enlightened times. Yet, all of us know this, yet there are still nations and groups today that, subs that subscribe to it. Baruch Goldstein was one such example. Now, I mentioned him in the opening sermon of the book of Esther. On February 25, 1994, during Friday morning prayers, Goldstein opened fire inside a mosque located on the traditional site of Abraham's tomb in Hebron. His attack and the resulting retaliation left many dead and many more injured. Only hours before his assault on the Palestinians, Goldstein was seen celebrating Purim in his synagogue listening to the annual reading of the book of Esther. He heard of how the Jews had escaped annihilation and killed 75,800 of their enemies in the provinces of Persia and Media over two days. He and many like him saw in the biblical text the scriptural rationale for holy war. Modern readers may shake their heads in disapproval. No, no. But holy war 
For those of us who read Scripture, Holy War is a familiar concept to the original readers of the book of Esther. For example, many will be familiar with this passage in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 16 to 18. The word of the Lord. However, in the cities of the nations, the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Do not live a life anything that breathes. Completely destroy them as the Lord your God commanded you. Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshipping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord your God. Scripture teaches us this. God is a holy warrior. He conducts holy war for His holy purposes. He fights for Israel. Israel fights the Lord's battles according to God's rules of warfare. God had earlier, I believe many of you will recall, God had earlier decreed the destruction of the wicked Amalekites, of which Haman was a descendant. We heard about this in some of our sermons, earlier sermons on Esther. Deuteronomy, same, 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 chapter, uh, same book, another chapter, chapter 25, verse Verses 17 to 19, the word of the Lord, Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. When the Lord your God gives you rest from all the enemies around you in the land He's giving you to possess as an inheritance, you shall blot out the name of Amalek from heaven, from under heaven. Do not forget. King Saul forgot and spared the life of Agad, king of the Amalekites. Queen Esther, on the other hand, succeeded where King Saul had failed. Whether she realized it or not, God used her to accomplish what he had earlier promised concerning the Amalekites. After the book of Esther, the name of Amalek or Agag was never mentioned again. This happens not because of anything praiseworthy in Esther or Mordecai, the author has almost nothing to say about them. They are not models for us. They are means to God. They are placed there to do what no other Jew could do. In the first place, God didn't even consider Israel to be morally superior to the nations. Remember that same book, this time chapter 9. The word of the Lord. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, referring to the nations, you do not, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No. No. It is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. God fights for Israel, yes, 
but God also fights against Israel. You see, the reason the Jews are scattered all over the provinces of Persia and Media is because they have become or they have become just as wicked as the nations. That's the reason why they are scattered all over the place, because they have become like the nations. The Jews cannot point their finger to the nation. These are wicked nations. Because the evidence, their exile, is proof that they are just as wicked as the nations. So originally, holy war, as taught in the Bible, did, we all know this, didn't extend beyond the geographical boundaries of the land of Canaan. God restricted it to the boundaries of the promised land. But in the book of Esther, in the eyes of some readers, there seems to be biblical justification for the Jews to take the fight to their enemies wherever they are. That's what some do today. Let's go back to the edict. Read carefully. But that's not what the edict actually says. This is what Mordecai wrote, or what, what was written on the edict. The king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day, throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerosh, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Ada, the Jews are not to take the initiative. The counter-edict gave them the right to defend themselves and destroy their enemies only when they are under attack. This isn't the same as the original divine mandate to devote everything to destruction, applied specifically to the land of Canaan. Why am I saying all these things? Here's the point I want to make. This is the point. Holy war, here's the key point. Holy war is God's war against wickedness. Holy war is God's war against wickedness. It is not an excuse for wanton violence. It is not an excuse to get rid of undesirable people. The human instrument of God's war against wickedness mustn't presume on His righteousness. God used Babylon to judge Israel for her wickedness. Then he used Persia to judge Babylon. Then he used Greece to judge Persia. Then he used Rome to judge Greece. Then God doomed Rome to destruction for her own wickedness. Holy war doesn't confer holiness to the human instrument. This is important. Holy war is God's war against wickedness. Holy war doesn't confer holiness to the human instrument. God could easily turn against His human instrument if they too acted wickedly. 
Holy war is God's war against wickedness. If this wickedness is seen in the church, God will fight even against us. So we must not presume. That's what holy war is. Holy war is not Christian versus others, you know. It's God against wickedness. And if there's wickedness among His people, God will fight against His people as well. That's what Scripture teaches. You know, um, many say World War I has been idealistically termed the war to end all wars. Subsequent history has proven otherwise. But there is a war that ends all holy wars. The ultimate battle against wickedness has been fought and won. Holy war is over. It is no longer needed. The advent of Jesus Christ has changed everything. With Jesus comes the cessation of holy war. God is a holy warrior. From the beginning of creation, He has been at war against evil and sin. The great flood. The overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah. Since the fall of humankind, God's irrevocable decree of death hangs over all of us. Romans chapter 6, verse 23, familiar to all of us, for the wages of sin is death. You know, I liken this to Haman's edict. This time, not just to all the Jews. This is God's edict of death against all of humankind because of their sin and evil. On the appointed day, or on God's appointed day, we all face death and destruction. God could have left us to face our deserved condemnation. Instead, He issued a counter-edict. Next line. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. For the wages of sin is death, God's counter-edict, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The punishment to be exacted for our sins has now been accomplished by the suffering and sacrifice of Jesus. The original edict of death cannot be revoked. It is still hanging all through all, over all humankind, the entire human race. The original edict of death cannot be revoked. So God issued a counter-edict of life. On the appointed day, we now have an avenue of escape. Colossians chapter 2. Verse 13 and 14, when you will dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. When Mordecai issued the counter-edict, the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. 
before there's only death. Now there is hope for life. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honour and in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. Today, Christians have more reasons to celebrate. Our holiday is three times better. Christmas, Good Friday, Easter Sunday. Before there is only death on the appointed day. Right? That's what all of us face at one time. On that appointed day, we all know. Die. Now, there is life, abundant life, eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Our song of joy is superior as well. All of us know this. We sing this. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? That is why in the pews, and I hope very soon, we can rejoice with our voices. We don't just hear singing here only. We hear singing there. We hear singing at homes. We hear singing on the streets. We hum the praises of Jesus Christ when we move from place to place because there is so much reason for us to rejoice than the Jews. The war that ends all wars is not World War I. The war that ends all wars is fought by the greatest person of all, by our Lord Jesus Christ. It is fought on a hill named Calvary. Colossians chapter 2, verse 50. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Since that fateful day, God pronounces the cessation of all holy wars. Nevertheless, evil and wickedness are still with us today. We still experience their destructive effects. We still succumb to sinful temptations. We still get caught in a conflict between good and evil. There is still a need to fight the good fight. So I come now to my last point. I come now to the conduct of holy war. How Christians ought to fight today. We no longer have to do what many others are still doing around the world. In, a, in the name of God, going around killing people. We no longer do that anymore. Because we all remember that God's original war is against wickedness. And God has dealt with that decisively once and for all on the hill of Calvary. I place the phrase holy war in quotes to distinguish it from the holy wars of the past, or should I say, some of the holy wars of the present. Christians no longer fight as the world fights. Our weapons are not the weapons of this world. We fight on at least three fronts. Let me just mention these three fronts. 
The first is against Satan. Here, he is our real enemy. Today, later, next week, or the past, when you look across at somebody you don't like, don't tell people, this is my enemy. No. Satan is our real enemy. Satan is the ancient serpent, the devil. He's the accuser of the brethren. He's the adversary that prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He's the cause of all our pains and sorrows. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Put on, therefore, as Paul wrote in Ephesians, put on, therefore, the full armour of God. Now, it is not the armour pieces that protect you. It is what they represent that protects you. Salvation, that protects you. Righteousness, God's war is against wickedness, right? You put on righteousness, that protects you. Truth, our battle is always a battle for the truth. That protects you. Sword of the Spirit. We all know the Word of God. You have this hidden in your heart, in your mind, directed by the Word of God. That protects you. Faith. Faith in God. That protects you. And the Gospel of Peace. Resist the devil with this and he will flee from you. That's how we fight. We put on those pieces of armour, we resist Satan and he will flee. Fight the good fight. The second front is sin. With the cessation of holy war, we can now love people. We are commanded to love even our enemies. That's how I now understand why Jesus said, love your enemies. But we are to hate sin. That doesn't change. Have nothing to do with the deeds of the flesh. Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 to 21, tabulates a long list of sin vices that constantly war against us. This war is ongoing. Don't let your guard down. Don't give, a, don't give sin a foothold in your homes and community. Speak out against sin. Do not be afraid. There is an attempt today to relabel sin, calling it nature, biology, genetics, personality. Oh, why are you like that? Genetics. Why do you do that? Biology. How can you justify that? Nature, man. 
Do you know that it's wrong? Hey, don't judge my personality. Do not be afraid to call sin for what it is. If God calls it sin, according to His word, you call it sin as well. If your friends call it something else, you still call it sin. Don't be afraid. Fight the good fight. The third front, self. If the battles I mentioned earlier on are those outside of us, this is within us. There's a battle going on inside of us all the time. The essence of holy war is not about Israel fighting against the nations. It is about God fighting against evil and sin. Before Christ, this entailed the destruction of wicked people, even the people of Israel. Don't forget that. God shows no partiality. Wicked nations, God destroyed. Sodom and Gomorrah, the nations in the promised land. Wicked Israel, God destroyed also. But with the coming of Christ, the theater of battle has shifted to the human heart. That's where the battle now goes on. Against Satan and sin, but also sin within us. From, for, for, for from within, out of a person's heart, comes all manner of evil. This is what Paul says in Romans 7. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Same like Isaiah, right? When he says, Woe, is you, right? No. Woe is them. No, right? Woe is everybody except me. No. Woe is me. Paul said the same thing. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. This battle within is a battle we can win. I have more to say about this next Sunday. So, let me just say this. Don't surrender to sin. Don't give in to the sinful nature. The sinful nature is defeated. Obey the Lord Jesus Christ. Without the roots of wickedness within you, Whenever the Spirit speaks to you and points out area in your life that He isn't pleased with, do something about it. Read it out. Remove it. Put away the old person. Train yourself to be godly. Don't just remove, but you, you, be, you act actively, positively as well. You train yourself to be godly. Train yourself to know the Word of God. Train yourself to pray. Train yourself to have time of silence and solitude before the Lord so that you get to hear more from Him concerning who you really are. Put on a new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Fight the good fight. 
Here are the three fronts. Satan, sin, self. That's where the battle is. It is the battle of the mind. It's the battle of the heart. And that's where we must fight. You know, our text this morning ends on this note. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. The peoples of the country dreaded the political and military power now wielded by Mordecai on behalf of the Jewish community. So in their fear, they professed to be Jews. The weapons we fight with today is created by love. It is love, not fear, that will compel people to be Christians. That's how we fight today. We carry in our hands not only the sword of the Spirit, but on the other hand, love. That's how we battle. Not with hatred, not with bitterness, not with anger, but with love, Christ's love. Isn't that how Christ won you over? Christ won me over by His love for me. This rascal here, God says one day, I love you. But Lord, how can you love me when I'm such a rascal? I love rascals and then I'll change them. And that's what God has been doing in my life all these years, changing me. It is love, not fear, that will compel people to be Christians. So let's rescue people from the irrevocable edict of death. Let's tell them of God's counter-edict of life, of life. Let's take our fight to Satan, to sin, and to self for the sake of the nations. This, then, is our holy war. That's how we conduct holy war today. When people ask you, how do Christians fight? This is what you tell them. We do not kill we do not destroy, we do not annihilate, we do not use the weapons of this world because the war we fight in is different. Why? Because of the counter-edict of life that Jesus has pronounced. And now I want to share with you how you can flee from death and enter into life. Our battle cry is clear. Last Sunday, we heard from our speaker on Reformation Sunday, according to scriptures alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, for the glory of God alone. Let us pray. How are you fighting? Are you fighting the good fight? Or are you fighting poorly? Are you still battling with people, with the weapons of this world? Speak to the Lord. And then be quiet for a moment and hear what the Lord has to say back to you concerning fighting the good fight. Oh Lord, our better cry is clear. According to scriptures alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, 
through faith alone, for the glory of God alone. We thank you, O Lord, that though this edict of death was hanging over all of us, and on that appointed day, there's only death and destruction. Thanks be to you, O Lord, for you have issued a counter-edict of life that through Jesus Christ, for those who believe in Him and have faith in Him, now have life, abundant life, eternal life. We thank you, O Lord, that you are recruiting us into your army so that we may fight on those fronts that you have given us, at least three of them, Satan, sin, and self. So Lord, so Lord help us to fight the good fight. Help us, O Lord, to put away that which leads to death and to put on that which leads to life. And even as we await that appointed day, today we can rejoice and celebrate because life has been proclaimed to us. We can get ready and face, O oh Lord, this evil world with hope and not with despair. So help us, O oh Lord, as we live this century this morning, seek the opportunity, O oh Lord, to rescue another one from the edict of death and introduce to them this edict of life found only in Jesus Christ our Lord. So help us, Lord, to live the life you desire us to live, worthy of your name, so that we may reflect in our very life the beauty, the beauty of God. We give you thanks, and in your name we pray, and let the people of God say, Amen.